probably informed I'm on. <laughs> okay. I'm going to obviously lead off on the Dharma talks this evening and I want to kind of examine this evening the whole notion of what we're doing here, what we're actually engaged in, in this path, this retreat, in your sitting meditations at home, the practices you do at home, why are we doing this? You know, what's this all about? Um, this is the question that I must admit, um, that I ask myself on a very regular basis. I mean, despite having been involved with this for a long, long, long time. Um, it's a good question. I think it's a question which is really about looking at our commitment to this path and seeing what we're doing. What are we involved? Our, what, are we, what are we committed to in this path? What are we actually, what are we trying to achieve? I'm not one of these people who subscribe to the idea that we're not trying to achieve something. Um, I find this a bit mendacious. I think all of us are here for a particular reason, um, to change something in our lives. And I think it's uh, good to own up to that, good to own up to the fact that there is something we would like to be different in our lives. And I guess everybody, well, everybody I ever usually encounter in retreat situations and you know, situations of this sort, whether it be in Europe, the UK, or here, actually come out of a reason. Usually a reason which is based on something like, uh, I'm going to go really back to basics now, something like the awareness of dukkha in your lives of some form or another. And that's that awareness, that, that dukkering, that uh, brings us sometimes, more often or not, to this juncture where we start to practice. And I guess many of you have been coming on a very regular basis here. As I said this morning, I recognize some faces, some I don't, or I think it was last night. Um, but it's important that we recognize what brings us to this path and we recognize the centrality of this notion of dukkha to what we're attempting, in some senses, to deal with. And so it's always very good to get clear about what we mean when we start to talk about dukkha. And I guess most of you probably know, I mean, that dukkha is not well served by its translations in English. In fact, many of the terms that we use to translate from Pali into English um, aren't very well served by the lexicon of words that we have, primarily because they're derived from the 19th century, from the early translators, and the one that we use for dukkha simply is inadequate, to say the least. It's actually misleading and sometimes uh, very far removed from our actual experience of, of dukkha. And obviously I'm referring here to that translation of the word primarily by the term suffering. You know, I could be really pessimistic. I could look at you all and go, you're all suffering. <laughs> we used to have a television program in England which I think one of the main characters used to go, you're all doomed. <laughs> 
Yeah, um, but you know, to say to you, you're all suffering, um, rather kind of, I think, overices the cake in many senses. Because as you sit there now, there'll be things in your experience which uh, you might want changed. In fact, you can do that as a little thought experiment. What, what in your experience as you sit here right now would you like to be different? If you can identify something of that sort, then you're dukkering. <laughs> and it might just be that I want to, you know, I want to be a little warmer, I want to be a little cooler. You know, this isn't so comfortable, I'd like a glass of water, you know, all these sort of things. Just these myriad of minor, uh, minor frictions which we have in our lives, which um, we are identifying really as the, the problem, the, the dukkha problem. I was very fortunate in my early training when I was in India to have, um, for quite a while actually, one of the Dalai Lama's tutors as um, a teacher. And he always used to say that dukkha wasn't like being stabbed. It wasn't sharp and it wasn't painful. And he said, imagine this. It was like slowly rubbing your arm against a brick wall. It doesn't start off very painful. Can you imagine that? I mean, it's a, it's a very graphic image, isn't it? Rubbing your arm against a brick wall. It doesn't start off very painful, but gradually, gradually gets more and more painful. And often I think that's that pain, that juncture where we recognize things have become intolerable to a certain degree that brings us to looking for the alleviation of that dukkha, some kind of way of changing from this state of being in pain, but often just being in a state of, I don't know, where the warp and woof of life seems, this friction that is constantly at the back. And it's always worth going back to this basics to remember what brings us here, um, often into these you know, retreat centers, to doing a daily practice, to having any degree of commitment to this path, to remember that's what it about, is about. And actually, that's what we really need to understand. We really need to understand this process of dukkha. Well, it's not just dukkha, as you heard me say, I kind of turned it into a verb form, it's dukkering. You know, how do you want to dukkha today? You know, this is the question um, that we need to ask ourselves, because there are so many different ways that we can do this. Now, etymologically, in, in Pali and Sanskrit, the word is derived from a number of things, but the chief ways that it's derived, I think it gives us a really good clue as to how to understand this term dukkha and its centrality in our lives, is to understand that it, that it was first used to actually describe um, in Vedic Sanskrit, which is the earliest kind of Sanskrit you get in India, um, it was first described to you, to, used to describe the hole in a wheel into which the uh, axle fitted. And it was full of dirt and grease and grit. And it went round and round and round. Does that sound familiar to anybody? <laughs> and also, this wheel didn't actually run steadily. It wobbled. Yeah. And this was actually to refer to the sense of the wheel of our lives actually running in a very wobbly condition in a very unstable condition. 
that we find ourselves in. It's actually also, if you kind of pull it apart a bit, part of it refers to space. You know, dukkha, ka actually is a synonym for space. Du means anything that's dirty and unpleasant, painful. Um, and literally, if you wanted to kind of join the two words together as it is in the compound that we find this word, then it literally means a dirty space to be in. It actually works quite well in English. We often talk about a bad space. Yeah. Well, this is it. This is the ultimate bad space, is dukkha. So perhaps this is our motivation. I'll leave you to examine that. But certainly on this path, this is the, this is the thing to be understood. This is the thing to be really aware of, to be you know, aware of our implication in its, in its production how we produce it, how it comes about in our experience. What do we do to create dukkha for ourselves? And I guess that many of you will know that uh, actually a lot of dukkha isn't just simply happening to us. It's what I call a self-inflicted wound. It's how we wound ourselves. And sometimes it's referred to in the text as the second dart or the second arrow. You know, not only do we have the pain of living, um, but then we willfully inflict another one on ourselves, you know, just to see how painful it really is. You know, this is a bit like having a kind of cavity in your tooth and you keep probing it. Is it really painful? Mm, yeah, it really is. <laughs> this is. This is what we do often with the, the vicissitudes of life, the things which are occurring to us again and again and again. And this again and again and again refers to the kind of repetitive behavior that you and I often are engaged in, admired in, which creates this general feeling tone of life, which is one of dissatisfaction. Dissatisfaction is probably about the closest English word you'll get to dukkha, although it's a spectrum word, so it can actually mean really suffering, um, so I don't want to dismiss that word altogether, but it doesn't cover a lot of what I call our ordinary dukkha situations that we find ourselves in. So this is the, the spectrum from just the general day-to-day irritations of life to the painful, somewhat tragic dimension of life. So it covers this vast spectrum of human experience you know, so that we are caught within some part of that spectrum, usually, at different stages in our lives. We find that. So that we find often when we begin to examine, and again, joining it with the ideas that I was presenting at the beginning, that perhaps brings us to places like this, we find that there is this generalized friction in life is grinding your way against the brick wall uh, that brings you to a situation where you think, what can I do about it? Do I have to live my life in this way? And that's ultimately what this is about, is about how you live your life. Um, There's one thing I definitely know about the Buddhist path. It ought to come with a government health warning that says this could seriously change your life. Because that's what it's about, actually changing lives. 
you know, changing it from being lives which are almost thoughtlessly, certainly unmindfully immured in this whole process of dukkering uh, to one that is starting to wake up to another way of living. And this figure, this figure who sits behind me here, this figure of the Buddha and what the Buddha represents, of course, is not an enlightened one, but an awakened one. Now, as I've often said to groups, you know, both on retreat and in study centers and everything else, I've always used that as part of my own commitment to this path because it's an important dimension of it that the Buddha, rather than being somebody who became enlightened, actually woke up. Woke up to aspects of existence to which we are normally blind. Aspects of our lives to which, which we literally don't lend an ear to. We don't listen to. Um, we don't listen to often our own intuitions. We don't actually look at what is going on in the world. And I've often used this as a challenge for myself, because if the Buddha is an awakened one, then I'm afraid to say it's really saying something about you and I, which is actually we're sleepwalking. We're somnambulists. We're walking our way through the world, half asleep, and the reason why we get so many bruises is we keep running into the same lamppost. <laughs> yeah. um, almost compelled to repeat things in our sleepwalking condition. Now, just occasionally we might go... <laughs> before falling back to sleep again. And then you'll go... and look around again, and then fall back asleep again. Now, I'm kind of jesting about this, but this is actually the condition that uh, Buddhahood represents a challenge for us in the sense that if this person who, I, these days I like to call Mr. Gotama, you know, don't really even find the name Buddha occurring very much in the text, you know, or this epithet Buddha. Um, this, this character called Mr. Gotama, who lived in India two and a half thousand years ago, what he did was something rather special. He woke up. You know? He woke up to uh, something that really is, something that really you know, made him change the direction of his whole life, um, to live in a particular way. Now, I kind of suggest that that's something that's implicit the moment we start to wake up to dukkha the moment we start to wake up to a degree of implicit you know, implication in this process of dukkering, of creating this situation for ourselves, that we can, we can actually begin to wake up in different dimensions of our lives, to take this mind which is dull, often repetitive, and caught in repeated, uh, in repeated action, doing things again and again and again. We often caught up, get caught up in cycles even, for example, of sensual pleasure. Now, I think any of us who've engaged in the kind of sensual pleasure realm feel a bit like a mouse on a treadmill. You know, uh, we keep doing it, but it doesn't seem to get anywhere. 
And even when we've identified for ourselves often that sensual pleasures, whatever they might be, don't really work for us, we keep on doing it out of the sheer disbelief that it's not working. <laughs> you know, so we keep on doing the same thing. Um, this kind of keep on doing the same thing has a name to which its feeling tone is dukkha. Uh, this name, which I'm, again you'll all be familiar with probably, is this term sangsara. Yeah. Repeated existence. Now I'm not going to get metaphysical on you and talk about it in terms of birth, death and rebirth and all these kind of difficult um, topics that we can discuss. But I'm going to talk to you about it in terms of repeated behavior. We get caught in cycles of repeated behavior. Through this dullness, through this sleepwalking, we keep on doing the same thing again and again and again and again. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Or, or is, am I talking to people who are awakened? <laughs> yeah, because this is what we're really trying to do, is get out of the cycles of repetition. Now, repetition is that which is engaged in because there is a fundamental non-understanding. There is a fundamental degree of not seeing how things are. I wish I'd coined it, but it wasn't really mine, which is uh, actually a little phrase that somebody said to me once, that the best definition that I'd heard of sangsara was one vast bad habit. <laughs> yeah. It's something you just keep on doing again and again and again in the hope that something is going to radically change. And this vast bad habit causes us to look in the same places again and again for some kind of resting place, some kind of place where our minds won't be driven any further that we can actually, in a sense, call home. And I mean that in the sense of feeling at home rather than four walls and a floor and a roof and everything else, but a place where we can feel at home and comfortable and content and not feel driven any further to have to search for something, being caught endlessly on this treadmill of desire, this endless treadmill of looking for something which is going to be a terminal point of our desiring. I think the one thing, if we've been engaged in that at all in our lives, that we'll understand is, A, the mind that engages in this is an extremely agitated mind, and B, that it's a mythology that we're all somewhat hooked into, that there is some point that this desire is going to stop when I find the right object, or the right person, or the right place. Um, it is a big, big mythology, and I, it, it's really encompassed in phrases like, if only I, I can put it in a number of ellipses here, I would be happy. Yeah. I don't know if you've ever done this for yourself. If only I had so-and-so, I'd be happy. If only I was with such-and-such, such, I would be happy. If only I had this, I would be happy. If only I was with this person, I would be happy. If I was only in another country, I would be happy. And the thing is, you always take your unhappy mind with you. 
no matter where you go, no matter what place you find yourself in, no matter what the object is that you gain, that the so-called happiness, the contentment, um, lasts for a very short span of time before you're into the mythology again of, if only I had, I would be happy. Um, and so this is this endlessness of the productivity of desire which leads us on to, you know, just this kind of keep on going towards something which is actually unsustainable and unfulfillable with this sort of mythology as, it, as, a, as the basis for our behavior. So when we come to perhaps examine our lives and see part of this within our lives, um, no matter how little or no matter how great. Unfortunately, sometimes this comes to us with the sense of mortality and tragedy. Um, also, often with health problems. It comes to us to start to examine the way our lives are and perhaps to want to make a commitment to something which is that actually perhaps holds the real promise of some kind of contentment to some kind of genuine resting place within all of this drivenness which we find ourselves caught within. The one thing that we do know, I think, if we you know, really are honest and really open to it, is that, to use Hamlet's words, the slings and out. Out, you know, the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune will not cease. They are part of the human condition. Yeah. There is always something going to be happening, um, something outside of our control. Um, this little beast that inhabits most of our lives thinks it's in control. It's called self. This is the thing that lurks within a tremendous range of our experiences, particularly our desiring and aversive experience um, that is given, you know, that it's given born to in these experiences uh, that thinks that it can control things, that thinks it can, you know, find something. So when we start to examine our lives, we examine dukkha, examine the drivenness of our behavior, the repetitiveness of our behavior, the endless burden. I don't know if you've ever filled this for yourself. I certainly did, you know, many, many years ago that started me out on this path for myself. Uh, the burden of the ego, the burden of the self. You know, to be a self is a really burdensome business, you know, to really want to put that self at the forefront of all things and to have that self as foregrounding itself in relationship to others. You know, the kind of discourse of me and me and me and me and then if there's any gaps, you might get a look in. <laughs> but it's the self that's put itself at the foreground of all experience. Almost inserted itself into experiences where it doesn't need to be. So out of this, perhaps there comes this desire to commit ourselves to something which is perhaps looking more closely 
at the origins and the wellsprings of this unhealthy, aberrant behavior that we often engage in, that in some way strips out the potentialities that we often have as human beings in this world, all of us, to live in ways which are you know, far, far, uh, in a way, above the lives that we live now. Ways that we can be more generous, ways that we can be more compassionate, more kind, more friendly, more connected with others, where the self isn't the constant intrusion that gets in the way and blocks our genuine relationship with both others and the world. Perhaps this is, you know, what I'm trying to suggest is, perhaps this is the heart, at the heart, of what brings us to these kinds of practice, that brings us to the kind of sitting practices that we're engaging in over this week, and hopefully that you practice in your daily lives on a regular basis, perhaps. You know, so this is important in the sense of owning up to what brings us here and what the intention is behind the activities that we engage in. Now, the question is, is are we committed? Are we really committed to changing our lives in this way? Because being committed means also to own up to all of the conditions I've spoken about and some that I haven't spoken about. You know, I've spoken about the dukkha. I've spoken a little bit about the self, but of course the one condition that permeates, absolute permeates everything into which we are in some senses inserted in life is impermanence. Now, impermanence as we know isn't all bad. Impermanence, when it works for us, is okay. Have you noticed that? You know, the, the boss gives you a raise and you go, you don't go, no, I don't want that. You know, I'd rather stay where I am. <laughs> you know, or gives you promotion or something. Um, that's the kind of impermanence you like. You know, when your headache goes, um, that's quite a nice piece of impermanence, isn't it? You know, so impermanence isn't all bad, but it's very much connected to what works for us. However, there's this vast, you know, obviously, sea of impermanence, um, which doesn't. It undermines a lot of human activity. It even threatens to undermine the very meaning which is instantiated into our lives, you know, to actually cut that out. And, of course, there is the big sense of impermanence, um, which is, of course, our mortality, our sense of our finitude. Uh, one which many of us, I don't say everybody because it's so individualistic and one has to look at this very much for yourself, this sense of our own finitude and how much we take that on board or how much, that we, de how much we deny it. But the thing I think we need to at least recognize is there is often this attempt to evade our sense of finitude, our sense of finiteness in this world. You know, death is what happens to other people. Yeah. Um, yet, with this ubiquitousness of impermanence, when there's this impermanence, which is what the Buddha is talking about, impermanence is there. It's, it's so ubiquitous. It's spread in our lives. I said it works for us and it works against us. But it's so ubiquitous, it's actually staring us in the face all the time. Yet we're somehow trying to build 
secure lives in the face of impermanence. Um, and that takes an awful lot of energy. I don't know if you're ever aware of this. Try, the, the amount of energy it takes to try and build an identity in a changing world, a permanence and a security and a guarantee of living in certain ways in an impermanent world. You know, it takes an awful lot of energy to do that. Um, it can actually consume the majority of the energy that we have available in trying to keep things static, trying to hold them desperately in place um, against the, the, the general tide of impermanence. And then, of course, there is the overwhelming, not just the overwhelming fact of this impermanence, but we are embedded in it. Have you ever thought it was a rather strange idea that everything is impermanent? We actually might all sagely nod our assent to this, you know, that's one way of deflecting it. You'll go, oh, yes, everything's impermanent. Yeah, everything's impermanent. Not me. Yeah. There is a sense of somehow the self being um, kind of given a, a, an opt-out condition. <laughs> you know, everything's impermanent. I can opt out of this, out of the impermanence. Well, we can't. And this is, again, one of the conditions that we're really having to face up to. So in talking about this, and many of you will know what these, you know, this kind of lengthy way I've put this is, is really, there's a shorthand way of putting it in the tradition, which is, of course, the three marks of existence. We never get away from them. Um, I nearly always try to start my talks off by talking about them because we never get away from them. This is the actual content of the awakening as well, to actually wake up to these three marks of existence. But the question is, is how committed are you to that waking up process? Now, only you can answer that. How committed are you to the alternatives of living a life, a life which is lived in the realization of those three marks of existence, that there is impermanence, that there is dukkha, and all of the challenge of living with impermanence and dukkha. The Buddha, even in his final days, his so-called final recorded words in the Maparanibbana Sutta, in the, the long discourse of the Deegan Nikaya, you know, I often paraphrase this, but you know, the actual um, way it's normally translated in the um, standard translation of this is you know, all, thing, all compounded phenomena are impermanent, strive on diligently. Yeah, you think he might have actually given a big sermon at the end of his life, you know, a big dispensation. Yeah, this is the Buddha's final words, and he's just saying, basically, what he's saying is actually everything you're going to encounter is impermanent. Now, just get on with it. Yeah. Now, just get on with the task of living, because this is one of the huge challenges we have, not just to distance ourselves and appreciate these things intellectually, um, but to actually see them in the laboratory of our own experience. And the laboratory of our own experience is exactly what you're committing yourself to, being on retreat, even practicing at home, doing the walking meditations here, and if you have time, doing them at home. This is what we're committing ourselves to, beginning not just to hold, for example, dukkha, 
and impermanence, uh, some kind of intellectual distance, but beginning really to realize these in the heart, and I really mean that, of our lives, the heart and the heart of our lives. Yeah. Now, this is not to, I mean, I, I might add here um, that the Buddha's intention wasn't, not, wasn't, wasn't just to make us unhappy. <laughs> this was not his intention. You know, by starting off with these very stark, in many ways stark facts about the human condition, that it is dukkha, that it is impermanent, and that it actually lacks any notion of a fixed self. You, know, you and I are changing phenomena. This is what we are. We are not permanent phenomena. You know, just like the, the things of the world, just like the Himalaya you know, still keep on rising by, I forget how much it is, but it's, you know, it's a substantial amount each year. The Himalaya continue to rise as the Indian subcontinent batters into the rest of Asia. You know, so too that this thing that we call a self is a changing, unfolding phenomena that is never really at an end until you're at an end. You know? Your, your unfolding phenomena of what it is to be this selfing process isn't fixed. It's not a given entity. Now that's a little bit more difficult to grasp, but impermanence certainly intellectually isn't difficult to grasp. What it is difficult to grasp is literally in the guts to take it into our embodied, gut-felt understanding of what it means to be here in this world with an impermanent body, with an impermanent self, and with everything around us that we see as being impermanent. Now that can sound quite stark, it can sound quite terrifying in some ways, but if we really take this to heart, then it freezes from a task that perhaps we've had since we were kind of so high, since we were very small, of trying to make things static in our lives. Trying to see things as being somehow recognizable because they are static. All the form of phenomena that we're embedded into, every situation, whether it's ethical or not, is a changing situation, an unfolding situation where our self is unfolding and that situation is unfolding in a very dynamic fashion. And there we want to go and freeze frame everything. And in freeze framing, we end up with pain. It's the only result. Yeah. If we tried to build whatever the edifice is, whether it's the edifice of the self or the edifice of who you believe somebody else to be or who you think some, or what you think something is and it changes, it's like building your house without foundations on shifting sand. At some point, the walls are going to fall down. And when the walls fall down, somebody is going to get hurt in the process. And that usually is you. It's an unavoidable consequence of building edifices on something which are changing, uh, which actually really can't take any sense of permanence or, or stability. So the worlds we live in are stable, they are changing. Um, as I say, we can easily, easily take this on board intellectually, 
that yes, I know everything's changing. Um, I hear this so much in, in Buddhist circles and meditation circles. People say, yes, of course, that's the most basic teaching. Everything is changing. Yeah. Yet, we live as if it isn't. That's really where we feel it. We live as if it isn't. If, I'm not talking about tragedies or anything of that ilk here, but one of the things that really testify, I think, to how we don't really take this on board is how upset we get even at small phenomena such as things getting broken, lost, stolen. Yeah. Yeah. All of those things happen. Or when something doesn't work. <laughs> you know, the rage, the incredible rage that people get in at... Um, actually, um, the English writer M.R. James once called, he entitled a story called The Malice of Inanimate Objects. Which I think is a, a wonderful phrase of describing the kind of rage that these things often provoke when they just don't work. <laughs> yeah. Yet, if we really took the notion of impermanence on board, would we really seriously get that upset about it? So, I'm not talking about tragedies here, which, of course, there is another whole dimension of this experience. You know, the loss of a loved one. Um, but just the ordinary stuff of life, the things that get broken, the things that get lost, and the things that don't work any longer in life. So, let me try to draw some of this together um, as we come to the end of this talk. What is going to commit us to this? What is going to commit us to this path? Now, this word in Pali, Adimoka, is literally actually um, a word which is meaning commitment, but is also meaning committing ourselves, deliberating ourselves from behaviors such as the looking for stability, the looking for permanence in the face of impermanence, the looking for security in the face of insecurity, the repeated attempts that we engage to do this with the resultant frustration that comes from it. I'm sorry to paint you such a bleak picture tonight. They'll cheer you up tomorrow night. <laughs> yeah. I just come to tell you the bad news. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Honestly, it will get better. <laughs> but, you know, um, in, in trying, to, trying to create this world which really does not exist then we're committed to something which is actually committing ourselves to dukkha. Now, when we commit ourselves to this path of awakening, to this path of cultivation, we're committing ourselves to something else. We're committing ourselves literally to this path of starting to wake up, to look at our behaviors, you know, to see how our behaviors, our security-driven behaviors, are often based on things like accumulation. Yeah. Actually, in the face of a lot of impermanence, most of us gather stuff. Have you noticed that? You know, we kind of fill up our houses with stuff, and it might be beautiful things, but you've got a lot of them in a room, and they just become junk. Yeah. Because you don't see anything very clearly. But when we start to gather all this stuff around us, it's an attempt to shore up this sense of instability that we have in, our, in the world. 
And so when we commit ourselves to this path awakening, we commit ourselves to a path even of beginning to let that go. To let go of behaviors which, for example, as in that one, are based on greed. Based on trying through accumulation of more and more. And it doesn't have to be material things. It can also be intellectual stuff. It can be you know, the greed from, uh, which actually comes out as emotional neediness and all these sort of things. The way we have of trying to grasp something to stabilize ourselves um, in a very, very shifting environment. When we commit ourselves to this path, this path of exploration, perhaps we're committing ourselves to that, well, I use the strong term, the path of renunciation, but certainly the path of letting go. Letting go of those kinds of behavior. The kinds of behavior that seek to establish myself as being central to everything that's happening. Now, these are not mutually exclusive because the notion of the self is often found in, for example, accumulation and aversion. You know, when do we most feel ourselves? When I want something and when I don't like something. You know, that's often when we most feel ourselves. A lot of the times we're happily meandering around the world, not experiencing that much of a self until you want something. And there you are. <laughs> you know, meandering around the world until you dislike something. And there you are again. You know? And so actually, you know, joking aside, our self is being born, this really strong, fixated sense of self, out of this desiring and out of this aversion. So when we commit ourselves to this other path, we're committing ourselves to a whole set of other psychological roots for our behavior. And what we commit ourselves to in this path, this path of exploration, and I very personally um, feel that this is one of the best ways of describing this path, is a path of investigation which actually makes you look at the results of unhealthy, unhealthy, unwholesome mental attitudes that we can bring to life, which are based actually on greed, aversion, and delusion, but also committed to very, very deeply beginning to look at the possibilities that are opened up by living life in a totally different way and committed to the cultivation of their opposites. Instead of greed, we get generosity as being a wholesome psychological root. Instead of aversion, we get this important thing which has come up. You know, Christina talked about it. I think Akinchino talked about it. I mentioned it in terms of the meditation this afternoon. Friendliness. This absolute sense of boundless friendliness towards things, and particularly towards yourselves. This sense of boundless friendliness. If you've got it towards yourself, it spreads out into the world. You have something to give. Something actually to be generous with, your friendliness. Yeah. Go ahead and be very, very generous with your friendliness. And instead of delusion, stumbling around in the dark, 
you know, trying to find our way around in a sort of simply confused sense. And despite all the things I've said, there's nothing actually that points a finger at any one of us that says, oh, we have to give ourselves a hard time because we're doing this. Actually, we don't. This is just the condition we find ourselves in. We're like confused people that actually don't know our way around a lot of the time. Our behaviors are driven often by distress, by woundedness, by pain, however that's been acquired in our lives, but just a general sense of confusion that gives rise to certain behaviors um, in this world. To come to an understanding, and this is the, fir- this is, you know, the, the very opposite, what is usually called wisdom, but actually I don't like this as a translation of, of the term. But when we come to a genuine understanding of things, we begin to live our lives very, very differently. And so we actually, there is a sense of beginning to look at the renunciation of old habit patterns, old ways of life, old ways of doing things, but we do this in our experience and in some senses see their consequences. See their consequences. So we we commit ourselves to a life of renunciation, but not just giving away stuff. That's easy. Giving away old habit patterns is much, much more difficult. We're deeply enmeshed. We actually often conceive of them as being our identity. I am this type of person. I'm an anxious person. I'm an angry person. I'm a frightened person. I'm a fearful person. You know, all of these labels that we give ourselves to identify ourselves in the world, well, actually, these are the things often we're deeply attached to. You know, we'd actually far rather give away stuff than we would to give away these senses of identity. Yet this, in a sense, is what we're committing ourselves to in this exploration in the service of leading and living our lives in completely different ways. In the ways which will take us into the possibility of really being human, with all what I call its potentiality of being human. We see the downside of being human in all of the distressing stuff which is linked to the kind of roots of psychological behavior which I've spoken of. Yet, when we substitute, when we begin to develop and cultivate the other roots and all of the psychological states which are actually embedded in those roots of generosity, friendliness, and really penetrating understanding of the way things are, then our lives are transfigured. This is a transfiguration that takes place in life. so that we can be completely different. And so the question, the committed question is, how do you want to live your life? That's where it comes to. How do you want to live your life? Do you want to live a life which is familiar and known, but actually has as its tone dukkha, or would you like to live a life which is committed and dedicated to fulfilling some kind of human potentiality that everyone has, absolutely everyone? I just want to finish off on a quote. Um, it's not from a Buddhist source, by the way. It's actually George Eliot um, in one of her novels. And I think this has gives you a, a sense of what perhaps is involved, even you know, outside, you know, looked at from outside, um, but what is actually involved in this path. 
And she says this, look on others' lives beside your own. See what their troubles are and how they are born. Try to care about something in this vast world besides the gratification of your small, selfish, petty desires. Try to care for what is best in all of your thought and action. Something that is good apart from the accidents of your own lot. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.